you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Foss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The ChrisVossShow.com. I don't know why we went long this time, but it seemed like something to do. Welcome to the big show, my family and friends. The Chris Voss Show family that loves you but doesn't judge you. At least not as harshly as your dad did when you came out of uh, your mom and he looked at you and went, Seriously, I want a daughter or I want a son. I don't know. Whichever it was, uh, work it out with your psychotherapist. It's not my problem. But the Chris Voss Show is here for you for everything else that you psychologically need. We just can't fix why your mom didn't hug you as enough as a child. So there you go. Uh, as always, uh, please refer the show to your family and friends and relatives. Go to Goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Voss, TikTok at Chris Voss One, and uh, I think there's YouTube in there somewhere. You guys know the drill. But as always, we love you. We appreciate you. Uh, and we hug you, even though your dad probably didn't, because as we forementioned, uh, we have an amazing gentleman on the show. He's a multi-book author, and he's got his hottest new book coming off the presses September 5th, 2023. How the, I'm sorry, let's recut that. How elites ate the social justice movement. Frederick DeBoer is on the show with us today. He's going to be talking about his latest book. And we're going to get insights that uh, we're going to learn some crap today, people. Because that's what we do on the Chris Foss Show. We learn stuff and we uh, get smarter. Because when you're smarter, uh, I don't know, you're sexier, you're more hot. I mean, look at me. It just get hotter every day. Uh, Frederick DeBoer is the author of The Cult of Smart, a book about meritocracy, education, and the potential for a more humane society. What has he seen the news lately? Yeah, we need some more humanity. Uh, it was selected by New York Magazine as one of its uh, 10 best books of 2020. He holds a PhD in English from Purdue University, where he concentrated on the assessment of student learning. Welcome to the show, Frederick. How are you? I'm good, Chris. Thanks for having me on. There you go. And I guess, uh, is it okay if I call you Freddie through the show? Of course. There we go. Uh, so uh, give us your dot-coms. Where can people find you on the internet and get to know you better? Yeah, you can look for me at freddydebore.substack.com. Uh, and you can also find my professional website at uh, frederickdebore.com. That's mostly just a, sort of where I warehouse old pieces. And you can find like my uh, my academic CV and stuff like that. But um, most of what, what I'm doing right now goes down on Substack. There you go. So what motivated you to write this latest book? <clears throat> sure. Um, I sort of looked around and I thought to myself, didn't we say a couple years ago that everything had changed? I mean, weren't we all talking about how society was sort of getting ripped up from the foundations and we were going to start over again and there was going to be all this massive revolutionary evolution in, in how human beings think and act? And then just sort of nothing happened. And it wasn't just that we said all that stuff and that nothing happened, but that like very quickly after it became clear that nothing was happening, people sort of decided not to talk about the fact that nothing was happening. And I just felt like some serious stuff went down in 2020. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. uh, some of which I agreed with, some of which I didn't. Uh, but definitely we said it was a special moment in history. Mm -hmm. And then it just passed um, like a fart into the air. And, uh, you know, I thought like we needed to take stock and, and figure out what exactly happened. You know, I, I totally agree with you. I went in 2020 and uh, we were holding uh, court in a new app called Clubhouse. And it seemed like everyone's kumbayaing, getting together and holding hands and, and going, you know, this is a moment that we need to recognize <clears throat> humanity. We need to be better people, you know, uh, maybe look towards our better angels, as some say it. Uh, and then as soon as it was over, it's like, everyone's like, all right, let's go back to being assholes. Or at least it seemed to be that way. I don't know. So I think I'm on the same level as you are. So the title of your book, uh, give us a 30,000 overview of the book and what it entails. We'll get into the deets. Yeah. So um, looking back at the last sort of like 25 years of American progressive social change, but also particularly the 2020 moment, my argument is just that a, a big part of the problem for progressive people, left-leaning people, et cetera, is that um, <clears throat> the the class of people who sort of tries to make this change happen uh, mm -hmm. are not the class of people who we're trying to make change happen for. In other words, um, the people who are running these activist organizations, who are employees at the nonprofits, who mm -hmm. work for the sympathetic press in the, in the national media, who uh, work at the universities, um, they are overwhelmingly people with college degrees. <clears throat> They're also hugely disproportionately coming from elite colleges. Mm -hmm. So, a, a point that I make all the time that I think most people don't understand, going to a college that's like exclusive or elite is super, super rare. So only something like 20% of American colleges reject more students than they accept. The, the average American college accepts almost everybody who applies. So going to a college that is elite or exclusive um, is just a, a very, very thin slice of American life. Mm -hmm. So you have people who are hyper-educated. Um, <clears throat> they're dominantly found in urban enclaves. So that's, mm -hmm. they're vastly more sort of concentrated in the cities and the, the country writ large. Um, <clears throat> they are uh, possessed of a certain like vocabulary that most people don't speak. And in, in one way after another, they're not like sort of the ordinary American. And so you could see this in 2020 where um, you had a lot of passionate sort of like Black Lives Matter activists who I think um, had uh, their hearts in the right place and who really cared, mm -hmm. but whose experience of life in America in the 21st century is just not like the average Black American's experience of life. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, what you find and what I detail in the book is how that distance between their perspective and other people's perspective made it much harder for them to actually create change. There you go. Uh, so who are the elites? Uh, you, I think you kind of give me a rundown of them. Do, do you mostly focus on what goes on the left side of our, of, of, of the elite, um, of the elites, or is it both sides left and right? Or uh, tell us how that you break that down and describe, do that. No, I think that it doesn't have to be a left or right phenomenon. I think mm -hmm. that um, if you look at the activist class of uh, the Republican Party, for example, I think that there is a stereotype that, for example, your average uh, uh, 
pro-life protesters say your pro-life activist is someone who is like a church lady who comes from rural arkansas and is not educated if you actually look at who's making things happen in the republican party who the movers and the shakers are they are also hyper educated they also tend to be heavily concentrated in the cities they often have a vocabulary that's very distinct from those of the people that they're talking about because I'm talking specifically about sort of, okay, why did the 2020 moment specifically not go anywhere? I'm focusing more on the left. But the reality is, is um, you know, again, we have to be careful about sort of like what the median in this country is like compared to uh, our sort of perception of who these people are. So um, I think with, if you look at 2016, there's this stereotype that the um, like the average Trump voter was like a laid off iron worker from Akron, Ohio, right? But if you look at the numbers, the median Trump voter in 2016 made $89,000 a year, okay? <laughs> like, a, like a lot of these guys are guys like who like, who they like own car dealerships, right? Yeah. Or, we should know, note that's quite above, above the average of normal Americans. Yes, the the the, the median American makes something like thirty six thousand dollars. Yeah, right. Um, and so, you know, one of the sort of sad, persistent dynamics in American life is poor people don't vote. Right? It's just it's been a consistent certainly as long as I've been alive longer. If you look at the participation rates by uh, income band, um, poor people just don't really vote. And so you get this stereotype where on the one hand you have the sort of, oh, country bumpkin MAGA, you know, rust belt guy who's angry about globalization. He put Trump into, into office. And then uh, in uh, for Hillary Clinton, oh, you know, it was probably, uh, you know, the, the sort of the negative stereotype of like the black welfare mother who doesn't do it. The reality is neither of those people vote in the American system. And yeah. like voting in and of itself is something of an elite practice. Kind of the way it's designed, too, the way the schedule is. I mean, you know, let's put it on a weekday in the middle of the day when, you know, most people that are lower income are, you know, they just can't call in their boss and take the day off, you know. Right. Uh, and, and you know, some of the games that uh, that are played with voting and, and polling and stuff. So delving into it, uh, the social justice movement, there was a lot of stuff that came out of it. George Floyd, um, there, was, there was a lot of... Uh, kumbaya moments and now we're kind of on the other side of it um and we're seeing you know it ha has it really worked out like we're seeing you know all the different issues that we're seeing uh you know the cars breaking into in san francisco and i and i, and I want to make clear i'm not adding to the narrative i see on fox news of of like oh my god this is you know the cities are burning and all that kind of crap but there definitely is a, a higher sort of break-in and crime things going on in, in some cities. There seems to be a little bit of that going on. I don't know what percentages of I heard it's actually fairly small, but, you know, you see the videos and you get an impression that, some, you know, it's complete chaos or something out there in the streets. Mm, yeah, I mean, the best read of the data that I have is that um, crime really did spike in 2020, mm -hmm. and particularly murder. Um, mm -hmm. We saw a, a major spike. It I didn't remains, do it, by the way. I just no, want yeah. to make it clear. It wasn't not, not accusing you personally. That it remains the case. Um, the average American city, big city, is remarkably safe compared to where it was 25 years ago. Um, uh, and in the cities that are particularly dangerous, they tend to be concentrated um, within certain populations in certain geographic locations, right? So mm -hmm. I think Baltimore has about 800,000 people or less than that even. New York City has over 8 million people, 
but Baltimore has more total murders per year than New York City. So, right. So like, um, but Baltimore has <laughs> this problem is concentrated within uh, the black male population um, overwhelmingly between 15 and 30 years old. And that's true in Chicago and it's true in St. Louis, et cetera. If you are as a tourist, go to these places um, and you are not frequenting the kind of places where gang violence happens, you remain in very little danger physically. Mm-hmm. I always tell my fellow lefties though, that look, um, crime is an example, perfect example of where if enough people think there's a problem, there's a problem. In other mm-hmm. words, I think the worst thing that you can do, if a voter says to you, well, I don't feel safe at night or the subway seems seems unsafe, so I don't want to ride it. If you say, well, you know, I've got the stat book here and I can tell you, you're just going to lose that person, right? Like the perception yeah. of crime is very important. I think that um, <clears throat> the, the, the issue that's really confronting the United States right now is sort of unfolding on a lot of different levels. But um, we have a sort of mismatch between what our perception of where the problem is coming from and how the problem is actually going to be solved. What do I mean about that? Um, <clears throat> during this whole 2020 moment, if you said, hey, look, you know, black people are dying at highly disproportionate levels to police violence, which just absolutely is true. It's just a fact. Yeah. Um, black, uh, conservatives would tend to say like, well, hold on a minute, but they're killing themselves in, in Chicago. And, you know, what about black on black crime? But of course, both of those things can be true at the same time, right? That's and true. in fact, part of the problem is, is that <clears throat> there's such deep distrust of the police in these communities that nobody wants to go to the police and tell them when they've been uh, <clears throat> been witness to an act of violence. There's mm-hmm. a, a culture of, of stop snitching. And so <clears throat> it's really difficult for the cops to sort of practice preventative policing. But ultimately you have to build that trust with the community. I think mm-hmm. that um, liberals and lefties have to accept it. Like people are just super, super sensitive to crime. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I say in the book at the exact same time as the activist class was were shouting defund the police in the polling a majority of black democrats were not saying defund the police a majority of black democrats were saying maintain the current police presence or even increase it in my neighborhood right mm-hmm. there's a perfect example of what i'm talking about when i say that there's just a difference in the lived experience of a black lives matter activist and the average black person and so mm-hmm. you, you just you have to confront these as complex social issues and not get into a slogan fight because if you are the one saying oh no cr- crime's not a pro- problem to a bunch of voters who are scared about crime you're just going to lose their votes mm-hmm. and, and, and in the in the title of your book, you talk about how the elites ate the social justice mm-hmm. movement. And I've heard you talk about nonprofits, mm-hmm. other organizations, corporations sure uh, went crazy falling over themselves. I think it's BlackRock that it isn't, isn't it the BlackRock uh, company that has, um, you know, that forces some sort of calculator justice system on corporations mm-hmm. um, that do that. Uh, is that uh, what you're talking about in your book when you mean, you know, like these, these, elites and organizations that are eating the social justice system and maybe don't do justice? Sure. That's, that's part of it. I mean, look, like um, the sort of the, the classic example is the gay rights movement after the legalization of gay marriage. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, I, uh, 
my parents were uh, <coughs> uh, close with a lot of activist style people. My father had lived in New York for 10 years and he knew a lot of people uh, who were sort of in the sort of early gay rights fight. And back then it was like genuinely just radical just to be gay and to, and to call for gay rights and gay marriage. Um, one of the things that happens in the history of progressive movements is winning is de-radicalizing, by which I mean simply the fact that gay people won the right to marry resulted in, like just kind of inarguably in my opinion, resulted in like a de-radicalization of what had been the gay marriage movement. Mm -hmm. A lot of people um, did what anyone does, what most people do with politics, which is they got the right they wanted and they went off to, you know, have families and raise kids and just sort of just be people, right? Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But what happened next was that, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of these corporations had saw sort of saw opportunity for good press. And so if you go to a pride parade now, a major pride parade, you know, Bank of America is hanging out, handing out pens, right, at, at yeah. the Pride Parade. Um, you go to, like, a big defense contractor like Raytheon, and they've got Pride flags flying from their um, flagpoles out front. Uh, nobody in the activist class takes that seriously. They all mm -hmm. sort of say, oh, that's just, they're just being opportunistic. But yeah. what it inevitably does is it just sort of sucks up sort of public understanding of what these issues are mm. and sort of aligns them with institutions. I, you, uh, of course, also the, the political parties are guilty of this too. So there's this famous picture that after George Floyd was uh, killed, um, you have all these, these democratic leaders like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, and they are wearing literally kinte cloth. Okay, so it's a traditional African oh, cloth yeah. and they kneel, right? Sort of in respect for George Floyd. And it's like, okay, but like, that's that's cool, but you make the laws, right? Like your job is not to put on kinte cloth and to kneel. Your job is to make the laws that are actually going to result in a more racially just society. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. So a lot of social signaling or virtue signaling uh, going on without a lot of substance, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the... Um, this, there's this old saying, um, you know, it's easy to do good, but it's hard to do good well, right? Oh. Um, the one thing that I don't do in the book is I'm not making fun of anyone who was um, impassioned in that moment. I'm not making fun of anyone who got radicalized. I'm not trying to make anyone regret what they were sort of feeling. Mm -hmm. um, I am saying that there's a reason why it's really difficult to make real positive change. I, I would say that if you're looking at racial justice specifically, um, you can say that arguably that like the, the sort of movement for racial justice, whether you want to call that the sort of civil rights era and the black power era, the uh, sort of Jesse Jackson rainbow coalition era, the, you know, now the black lives matter uh, era since about 1965, um, there's been a lack of results. And I would argue that that lack of results stems from the fact that there's not a real clear sense of what the ask is, right? Oh. Like in politics, you got to know what you want, right? Mm -hmm. the, uh, the civil rights movement took a long time to get going for obvious reasons. Um, but when it got going, it really made a lot of headway quickly because they knew exactly what they needed. So the Voting Rights Act came first. Mm -hmm. Why did the Voting Rights Act, why was that the top priority, if nothing else? Um, it was a top priority because 
if you don't uh, <clears throat> secure the vote for black people, if you don't protect their right to vote and make it a federal crime to stop them from voting, then none of the rest matters because they're going to remain disempowered. Yeah. You say, okay. We got that. Now it's a federal crime if people stop us from voting. Uh, the you know National Guard was deployed to places to ensure that Black people could vote. Okay, and they have the Civil Rights Act, right, which is <clears throat> made up of a whole bunch of uh, non-discrimination clauses and, and ways to tear down Jim Crow and segregation. You can't have a lunch counter with a sign up that says "No Coloreds anymore," right? That's great. But then the question became, what next? And mm -hmm. in fact, if you read Martin Luther King's um, uh, work from late in his life, uh, he was open about the fact that he was frustrated with the lack of progress. But the problem mm -hmm. is, is they couldn't settle on an actual demand. Um, you have seen uh, reparations has been something that has sort of floated around semi-seriously for decades. You know, um, you have uh, this sort of now things with the prison industrial complex and the war on drugs, et cetera. There hasn't been that one thing to ask for. And when there's that, not that one thing to ask for, it's really easy to not get what you want. There you go. You know, and correct me if I'm wrong here in my memory of this, but, you know, one, one of the challenges uh, Martin Luther King had was the fighting the other leading voices in the party uh, or in, in, in uh, the group of folks who want to reform, you know, like Malcolm X, you know, was more, you know, violence and whatever black Panthers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fight over what is this message? How we get out is very true. Um, do you see that? Do you, do you, so is your, is your, is your supposition that these, these huge organizations, these elite voters, uh, have just kind of hijacked the movement uh, for the feel-good virtual signaling and sales of whatever product they can move and, and uh, I don't know, so you can look good around people on social media and maybe get chicks or something. I don't know. Uh, I see a lot of virtue signaling on yeah. with my, you know people that are on the far left. Uh, I'm a moderate Democrat, by the, by the way, full disclosure. But, I, you know, I can see both sides of the party, and I, I'm not happy with the extremes on either side. Um, and so do you, do you think it's that, or, or do we need to also place some blame on the average person who votes or doesn't vote yeah i mean look like um <clears throat> i believe so you, you can look at any election and you can say okay the democrat got this many votes and the republican got this many votes but mm -hmm. also there's another one which is like people who didn't vote right the last time that's a presidential election was held where one of the candidates got the more votes than people who did not vote was teddy kennedy mm -hmm. okay um, not Teddy Kennedy, uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, excuse me. Hmm. Theodore Roosevelt's election was the last time that a candidate got more votes than the number of people who did not vote. Okay. Hmm. So we've got this, this issue. Now I'm among those who say that, um, <clears throat> we have to look at this scenario as saying, uh, we need to give them something to vote for, right? It's not, it, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, they're so apathetic. They're sitting on their ass. They don't care. A, a lot of people care, but they don't see real distance between the two parties in terms of what they're offering. And they don't see a lot that worth, that's worth supporting. That or they don't pay attention to even know. Yeah. But and so they're busy watching The Bachelor uh, whatever's on Instagram, I guess. Yeah. So, like, so let's, I want to talk about this idea of like, like moderate Democrat position because I think that, like, what gets defined as a moderate position is very important and not discussed enough. So I'm, I am not a moderate, but um, 
let's look at like the child tax credit expansion. So okay. for those listening who don't know, there is a, a child tax credit in this country um, <clears throat> uh, so that if you have kids, um, <clears throat> you get some money knocked off of your federal taxes. Um, there was an expansion of that program that was passed as part of one of the big COVID relief bills where for a single year, um, this program was expanded such that um, it became somewhat more generous and <clears throat> parents could actually, instead of just taking money off of their taxes, they could get like a refund so they could get cash money for, for this thing. It's very common in many, many countries to have some sort of cash benefit for parents in order to pay for whatever. Um, that program, uh, to me, right, that was sort of set up to be a sort of a dream of what the left wants. Mm -hmm. um, but if you actually look at like the history of the Democratic Party, that kind of universal cash, cash benefit for an identified population that has an unusual financial burden, mm -hmm. social security for the elderly, Medicare for the elderly, Medicare, Medicaid for the, uh, <clears throat> for the disabled, et cetera. Um, social security payments for people who are permanently disabled, such as the blind, et cetera. Um, that is actually right in the center of the party's wheelhouse. That is just mm -hmm. the sort of thing that the Democrats do really well. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of a program uh, tends to be very popular. It's actually much cheaper than you might think um, <clears throat> when you actually look at how much they like, do out sort of how much it actually costs. Um, and it has this beautiful sort of uh, <clears throat> scenario where it is race neutral. Anyone who's a poorer parent can draw, can draw from this money, right? Mm -hmm. um, it is it is uh, means tested, so you don't get it if you make above a certain amount of money. So it's, it's restricted to people on the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, but even though it's race neutral and white poor parents and, and Hispanic and Asian, whatever, the people who benefit the most from it are black parents because of the distribution of poverty in this country. Mm -hmm. So it has this, this function where it could cut child poverty in this country dramatically. Uh, it is a benefit that's generous enough that it's going to give people the opportunity to take care of things for their kids without being so generous that it's a disincentive to work, if you want to talk about that. Um, and it is race neutral and any people can take advantage of it if they're poor enough. But it also has this nice effect of being disproportionately helping black people because they tend to be more impoverished. That to me is not extreme, right? It's only extreme in the context of sort of contemporary democratic part of politics. You know, Joe Manchin was the one who killed that program. And Joe Manchin is seen as like, you know, the most right wing Democrat senator from from West Virginia, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> that's a good example, though, where Social Security was not a a radical left wing program within the Democratic Party of the New Deal coalition. Right. Mm -hmm. Medicare. Uh, and the various great society programs was not a radical position within the, the Democratic Party of the 1960s. And I think that it's a question of how do you sort of frame what you see as the as what is moderate, less than sort of like this is objectively moderate or extreme, et cetera. Definitely. You know, it, it, it's sometimes I think, I mean, there's criticism of us as Democrats that we don't communicate effectively our message or there has been in the past at times. Um, and, but, uh, you know, trying to find stuff that's good for everybody. So something is towards the middle and, and you know, why the poverty of white people is very big, especially in the mid and central South. In fact, I think, uh, most of the, um, 
social services are consumed by them, which mm -hmm. is kind of interesting. Um, do you see what? What do you think about the criticism? Let me play you devil's advocate. What do you think about the criticism of programs like that that say um, they're buying votes? Um, I, like I, you could say that about almost any kind of public That's true. expenditure, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, look, uh, look. It is famously a a tactic of the defense industry mm. is to have parts of their process be done in as many states as possible. So I believe the stealth bomber, uh, the old stealth bomber, literally had at least one part made in every state in the union, all 50 states, because that meant that if you tried to cut that program, 50 states worth of senators, right, had people on the phone, you're going to cut that and kill my job, right? I live in Connecticut, right? I'm, I'm from Connecticut originally. And I, um, it's, a, it's a true blue, super sort of, sort of blue Democrat state. But the biggest industry here uh, is insurance. The number two is the defense industry. We've got Sikorsky helicopter, right? We've got the, in Groton, they make the nuclear submarines. <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the, the Colt uh, firearm company is here. Um, Pratt and Whitney makes the jet engine uh, uh, engines for the for the jets. Um, it's very much a part of the sort of the, the mo of defense industry is to understand you spread your operation wide so that you have as much geographical representation in Congress as, po as possible. Is that buying votes? I don't know, but it, it it's just a reflection of the fact that like everybody's getting something out of the system, right? Yeah. Like. You, you can't be too cynical about sort of who's getting money from what, because certainly the defense industry is getting a lot of our money. There you go. And, and I suppose anybody who accuses it of buying votes would, you know, I mean, that's, they're, they're trying to play the, uh, they're trying to play those political cards. Do you, do you find that, uh, you know, w with institutions and elites, uh, you know, one of the, one of the challenges I had was uh, when the overturning of Roe versus Wade happened, there was all there was a lot of hair on fire screaming on social media, and you know, probably so. People, I mean, you, you, it was a shock to the system. You overturned something that people kind of felt was a, a God given right at this point, um, after what 40 or 50 years or more. Um, but you know, I started asking people, um, that were going hair on fire on Facebook, and I said, Okay, well, this is great, you're really fired up about this. Let me ask you two questions Did you? vote for Hillary in 2016, show up to vote, and are you registered to vote now and you're planning on voting in 2020? Mm. No. Yeah. I'm like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, I mean, it's fair point. <laughs> I mean, the, the I did. Point. I was there. I represented. So uh, you didn't, and now you're complaining, and oh my God, votes voting has consequences or not voting does. I mean, abortion to me is, uh, I, I don't think people understand. It's like, if you ever doubt the, uh, the ability of a small group of motivated citizens to make change, mm -hmm. you have to look at abortion rights in this country. When Roe v. Wade happened in the 1970s, um, in, in polling then, a significant majority of Republicans even favored a woman's right to choose. So we are in a, con we're in a context now where abortion is the ultimate dividing line and where it's such a such a super passionate issue and it's it's conservatives versus liberals and democrats versus republicans etc um accepting that a woman had a right to have an abortion was just sort of like a general popular opinion that was very common among both sides of the aisle back in the 1970s 50 years ago um 
<clears throat> what happened was that you had this group of people of activists, uh, pro-life activists, who were just super, super motivated, and they just went to work every day, and they refused to take no for an answer, and they fought like hell inside of the Republican Party, and they made abortion a litmus test where if you're going to be a, a national Republican, you better be pro-life or else we're going to come and get you. Um, and eventually they created the uh, condition where the, the court was sufficiently uh, skewed towards conservatives where they got what they wanted. Um, now I'm a pro-choice guy, so I, I think that's unfortunate, but you know, in 50 years, they completely changed public opinion and they, and they were able to get rid of Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that people not become too cynical about their ability to sort of make change within the system, right? Because mm -hmm. if you really, if you really believe in something uh, and you really pursue it and you use the, the sort of power that you have within your party, you can make something happen. I will say that this has led to a bunch of democratic victories, right? And one of the things that happened is immediately after Roe v. Wade went out is that like, oh, people are like, wait, they got rid of abortion and now suddenly they're winning a bunch of, of uh, elections that they could have lost. And that's just how American politics functions. You know, you one side wins some and then they just it's clawed back, you know. There you go. You know, it, and you 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 lead into the, the point I was trying to make where, uh, you know, the apathy of voters who don't show up and then they wonder why change happens. And, oh, my God, uh, you know, things voting or not voting has consequences uh what i mentioned earlier about the people who don't show up to vote and who who don't care and this is another way why social change fails because you know you I, i've heard so many people it doesn't matter which president you do or whether it's left or right i've heard so many people be like well we voted for that guy to go you know fix this and in, in whatever and you're like, but you voted for the president to go in from one side and you voted from the Congress to go in the other. And, you know, they, for about 20 or 30 years, they've been doing this death match thing where, you know, they just I, I can't remember who the speaker of the House was who basically said, we're not going to pass anything Obama wants, you know. Right. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's happening on both sides where it's just like we, if it's oh, that's a right thing. We're not going to do it. If it's a, oh, that's a left thing. We're not going to do it. Instead of yeah. trying to, you know, have that old sort of, you know, Tipper O'Neill or Pryor thing where we try and figure stuff out. Yeah. Um, and and do you think that uh, your your point to like, you know, uh, these politicians who do the virtual signaling, but they don't do anything about it when they have their hands on the ability to do something yeah. about it. And then of course we have these voters who have their hands on the ability to do something, but they don't show up to vote. Um, uh, who, who's who's the bigger one at fault? Is the is it the elites or is it the is the voters that that just don't give a shit and then they and then they're all angry because oh my god, uh, voting has consequences. So I th I think that I would sort of distribute the blame here. I would say that um, and again, like this is true of of Republicans as well as Democrats in their own way. I focus on the left side because I am on the left and I want my side to do better. So that's what I'm trying to, to sort of tell them how to do it. That's the point of the book. Mm -hmm. um, it is just the case that like um, there are in-group politics and there's out-group politics. When you're in your group politics, you want to be more extreme and you want to sort of be more pure. When you get to the out-group politics, you want to be more compromising and you want to shade towards the center so that you can win, right? Part of the problem with what's happened in American politics is that the internet eliminates the distinction between in and out group politics. Huh. Right? Like, like literally, it just used to be the case where, you know, 
um, you'd be doing politics, like you'd be engaging in political debate in your union hall, right? Uh, and the local candidate, a Democratic candidate, would come and talk to you guys and you'd, and you'd talk it out and you'd sort of have the kind of arguments that now happen on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. And then that's the in-group and then you'd send the um, <clears throat> the that candidate out to, to sort of win the election. And in the election, he wouldn't talk the same way he'd talk in that space, right? Because you oh. have to have operate on multiple levels. Mm -hmm. and in the internet era, everything is happening in the same space all the time, right? Like the social distance between the inner space and the outer space, the in-group conversation and the out-group conversation has been shattered. If you are someone who is a candidate and you go to a small meeting of, you know, people who are sort of affiliated with a given political movement, there's going to be somebody with a cell phone camera there and they're going to, and they're it's going to have video of you saying the extreme thing that you say in the in-group and that's going to go out on Twitter. And if you are a politician and you say something, so in a big speech for everybody to hear, well, that's going to get taken back to the people in the in-group and they're going to know that you said something that's not the same as what you said in the out-group. So that's, that's, that's one just structural problem with American politics right now is it's gotten harder to have a difference between the message that you say to people in your party, in your group, in your ideology, and a message for the public writ large. Mm -hmm. now, when, um, now, when it comes to the public though, right, um, mm -hmm. as you suggested, they don't make a lot of sense, right? <laughs> like, uh, the general average member of the public just does, doesn't appear to have very coherent politics. Um, a, a very longstanding uh, uh, finding in, in, in polling is, you, you know, you, you, take, you do a poll of people and you say, okay, are you, are you big government or small government? <laughs> well, I'm small government. And you say, uh, should we, uh, <clears throat> should we deficit spend? Should we, should we rack up the national debt? Or should we should we live within our means? Live within our means. Okay, so we're small government. We're going to live within our means. And you say, okay, which of these programs are you going to cut? And you say, military, Medicare, Social Security, da, 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 and they say none, right? So they they want a small government balanced budget, but also don't cut any of the programs at all, right? And yeah. that's just like that's just how people operate. Like it, politics happens at such a level of abstraction that it's hard to sort of identify when you're being a bit of a hypocrite. <laughs> That's true. And there seems to be a lot of hypocritical things that go on on both sides. And, and maybe we need to identify that more. So what do you hope to people learn from in your book? Uh, and do uh, elites need to change their behavior? Do companies need to quit mucking about? You know, we've seen the kerfuffles with like the Bud Light thing. Um, maybe less social signaling. The politicians need to get in and do the the, the dirty work as opposed to just you know uh, focusing on these on these uh, uh, these hot topic issues, but never do anything about it. Yeah. So I think that uh, just sort of just sort of gets to what I was just saying about inside and outside. A fundamental problem that the left has right now is the way you become a person of influence in the left of center, whether that's you know, moderate Democrat, liberal, left of liberal, whatever. The way you become a person of influence, the way that you sort of like get sort of a position of power, uh, an audience, whatever, it's like with like within like the system of like American meritocracy, right? You bust your ass in high school, you go to elite college, 
Um, you probably go on to a graduate degree of some kind. And then you end up, if you're going in media, you end up maybe at like The Atlantic, right? Or The New York Times. Or you go to uh, into academia and you end up um, at a, you know, really exclusive liberal arts college. Or you go with the sort of think tank slash nonprofit route and you end up, you know, at the Ford Foundation, et cetera. And like that's sort of like the progression that you go through to become a person of influence. And the problem is, is that progression, right, produces people who talk in a weird way, who have politics that are kind of extreme, who have politics that are much more focused on social and cultural issues than on pocketbook issues. People go through the process of becoming sort of elite within these spaces because they want to be part of the conversation, but they, in doing so, they lose the ability to talk like a regular human being. It's always been the case, right, that there is a uh, sort of elite class who guides the parties. But again, it used to be a lot easier for those people to stay out of the way. Right. Mm -hmm. So you had the in the 1960s, you had Democrats had, you know, this concept of the best and brightest, which was like this sort of layer of of these elite college grads who were very well credentialed and who knew everything. But they weren't on the campaign trail. Right. Like you like you, they sort of directed policy. But then, you know, you would go on and you would send out LBJ. Right. Who was a guy who knew how to speak to the people. Mm -hmm. um, the problem now is right. Like. If you want to know what elite democratic opposition is or opinion is, you go on Twitter where everybody's performing for each other, right? Or you listen to their podcasts, right? Or everybody is available all the time. Yeah. And we just, we have a fundamental problem that people who go through these elite spheres, you know, they, they can't say like, um, like black people, they say black bodies, whatever the fuck that means, right? It's like a, a big thing that they say, right? Like um, uh, they don't say homeless anymore. They say the unhoused, right? And and most people, when they say it, here's you say, oh, the unhoused, they're black bodies. They don't say, okay, I'm going to educate myself. to be like, They're going to say, what are you talking about? I don't know what that is. So that's like a, just a fundamental problem. And so I think one thing that I want people to absorb from the book is that like, um, you know, the average, you know, Dartmouth University graduate who then goes on to get work, get a prestigious internship and then lands at um, a nonprofit group that um, is staffed entirely by people like them, where just everyone is, an, is, is, an, is from the academic elite like that. That is a system for producing people who appear out of touch to most of the country. There you go. You know, th these are great points. Do you think this contributes to why people don't show up and vote? Why people feel out of touch with government is because, you know, everyone's talking so elitist. I can see how that sounds really, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it really sounds like you're playing people when you're talking down to them or you're telling them what their experience is while you're sitting eating your tofu and you're in your, uh, in your, uh, you know, uh, high-rise condo and, and your Tesla, and you're, you're trying to tell someone who's uh, living in poverty paycheck to paycheck and at the ends of our society, um, you're trying to tell them what their experience is. Yeah, and I want to say this, Chris, to, to be very clear to your audience and to you, um, I am one of these people I'm talking about. All right, let's mm -hmm. be real clear here. I have a PhD, okay? I am a professional writer with a PhD 
who had lived in Brooklyn for the better part of a decade and et cetera, et cetera. I, uh, I am not saying that I am the man of the people. As I say in the book, right? I know how to critique these people because I've been among them from my entire adult life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not advancing myself as someone who's more pure or more real or more down to earth. But what I am saying is um, sooner or later, there has to be an acknowledgement, right? That um, you can understand and believe in and see value in the concept of intersectionality, for example, which is a very prominent sort of cultural studies, lefty kind of philosophy. You can value that, but understand that the rest of the world sees you when that's the term that you keep using in your daily day-to-day engagement with other people. When that goes into your uh, position paper that you write as a nonprofit, when that is in the article that you write for the Washington Post, um, and it is alienating to them. They don't know what that is. They don't have the benefit of uh, $80,000 a year college education. And there has to be some grappling with maybe the reason that people think we're out of touch is because we actually are out of touch. There you go. Uh, becoming self-aware. You, you, you make a good point. It's alienated in the language and, 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 and well, you, you, uh, you're, you're trying to utilize this principle of, of self-grandizing or, or virtue signaling, uh, combined with, well, we, we want to help people. I, I think some people have an intent to help people. It's the delivery that's the problem. You know, it's mm-hmm. always the intent that takes you to hell. But uh, I think you're right. It, it's alienated. It's talking down to people when you're not speaking in, in their sort of language. And, uh, and and maybe that's the reason a lot of people don't vote in this country because they're just like, I don't feel like I'm part of this system. And we have gotten out of control with Citizens United and uh, several different things where, you know, basically as a billionaire, you know, buy justice, <laughs> pick, pick your Clarence Thomas and, uh, hey, I don't know, jet plane and a justice. Um, you know, a lot of this is really kind of amplified, um, you know, these elites and stuff. So to, so to maybe people on the left, as you're calling us out, um, need to be more self-aware of that. And maybe we need to be like, maybe we should talk about the kitchen table sort of products as opposed to these virtual signaling social movement things that, that don't really seem to hit the pavement or maybe they'd hit the pavement better if we didn't. In the book, I, uh, I quote from a pamphlet that the British government uh, <coughs> uh, gave out after they uh, developed their national health service. Um, they, uh, the country had been devastated by World War II um, there was, it was, I mean, there was just rubble everywhere and they were trying to sort of rebuild from the ground up. Um, and so they created their national health service and they gave a pamphlet and it said, uh, in the plainest language you, that possibly you can, it said, okay, this is our national health service. This is what it can do for you. Everybody gets to, gets to access it. You pay for it with your taxes and here's some things about it. And at the end of the book, I, one of the pieces of advice I give is just, Tell people in plain language what you have done for them. There you yeah. go. There so you look go. At, if you look at like Obamacare, I think Obamacare had some good provisions. And I think that I'm glad that we have Obamacare rather than nothing. It was better than nothing. But like a fundamental political problem with Obamacare is you, people say, okay, what is Obamacare? And you say, 
well, and then you launch into a 20 minute dialogue about like just trying to explain the law, right? Because, okay, so, well, there's, there's Medicaid expansion, but not all the states took advantage of it. And there's a, a provision that says that you can't be turned down for new coverage just because you have pre existing conditions, but they can still turn you down because you can't pay and lots of other reasons. Also, no, the government doesn't give you coverage, but what it does do is it creates a series of marketplaces. And on those marketplaces, private insurers send you. Uh, like potential offers and they're rated gold, silver, or bronze for the record. And you have to cover a certain amount of coverage, but you can, if you want, choose coverage that's very minimal. Like once you start to do that, you've already lost, right? Yeah. Like, people are just glazing over in their eyes going, right. oh. guess what? Social security. When you get old, the government will give you back money attached from you so that you have money to live. That's a program that I know how to describe. And guess what? social security is incredibly popular, right? Because yeah. you just, Hey, look, while you're working, we're going to take some money from you. And we're, that's going to ensure that at the end of your life, when we used to have a poverty, an elderly poverty rate of 40% in this country, it's single digits now. And it's single digits now because we made that, 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 that program. You've got to be able to simply and coherently tell people that what we have given you is this, and that's how you get people to vote. There you go. I know the Biden administration has tried to target more what they call kitchen table topics. Yeah. And I'm kind of at the point too, because I've gone from the far, not, I was never far right, but I've gone from the right in the nineties and voting for Republican, um, which is interesting because George W. Bush embarrassed me so badly with the, you know, basically monetizing with, well, the Dick, it was called the Dick Cheney presidency, I think, yeah. monetizing uh, Halliburton in the war. Um, it's funny, I left the Republican Party because I was embarrassed over George Bush and his dumbness. Um, can you believe what I, <laughs> anyway, whatever. I, I mean, George W. Bush is a, a perfect example of like how, like if, if you have enough balls, you can just sort yeah. of, you can misrepresent even who you are. You ask the average person, who's George W. Bush as a person? They'll say, oh, he's the country bumpkin from Texas. <laughs> he was an aristocrat from Connecticut. What are you talking about? He's from, a, from yeah. a hugely wealthy New England family who went to Yale using skull and bones. But he yeah. just sold it. He just sold it so strong, you know? Yeah. And he, he talked it, too. I mean, yeah. he did sound like a country bumpkin half the time. Yeah. But. Uh, and then I went to the far uh, left, uh, far liberal, and now I'm back at the middle because I think I, I like what you've talked about in the book. I become so tired. I, well, social movements are there, and there's there's importance to them, uh, and we need to fix some things. I get tired of this, the signaling of these extremes that we can't get back to the middle or we can't agree to the middle. It's 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 our way or, or other or or nothing. And the same thing on the right too. Um, and, you know, these politicians that do all this virtual signaling, but as you mentioned in the show, you guys control the legislation, like go fix the damn crap and let's all get along instead of doing more signaling to, I don't know, voting that you're going to have come on your base that you know is going to come from that far extreme left. Let's try and get that middle voting out. And I know the Biden administration was trying to do more kitchen table things. I'm at that point. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's fix abortion and and either make it legal or illegal or let's all get together and, and try and find a way to make it work somehow, uh, so everyone's happy or at least you know uh, everyone can agree that there's some way that that can be done. But can we fix the goddamn roads? Mm. Can we get can we get my bridges to quit falling down? That might be a cool thing. I, I like the child stuff. Can we you know I don't I don't like hearing that kids show up to school and they they don't have food. 
my mom was a teacher. I, I've seen, I've heard how that, how the horrors of that. Uh, can we, can we, you know, help uh, mothers and, and maternity? And, you know, can we do a lot of these social things that they do in other countries that just form a good country, a humane thing, these kitchen table things? You know, I don't want to hear about, you know, a, Okay, the trans movement is very important to me, LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera. But some of these, some of these things like, you know, uh, what's gone on with, uh, uh, you know, people, people want to change their sex and all that stuff. That's like, I think I read the figures on it. It's maybe 1% of the country or 2% of people in the country that want and, and really need that and are interested in that. That's a great thing. Let's do that. But you would think that 95% of the country were arguing about that in, you know, the way the politics and the way they milk it and the way they, you know, run everybody, even politicians are running around their nose hairs on fire. Like, this is the thing we need to talk about. You know, I watch political debates where they talk about things and you're just like, man, can you just fix my fucking roads and uh, maybe help give us more jobs? You know, let's, let's quit running around with these things. But it's kind of like the elites and politicians have gotten sucked into this is virtual signaling and then they go back to their offices and they go which stocks do they need to buy this week <laughs> right i don't know i mean look like the you know uh i think that it, it is a constant throughout history that um politicians will start to demagogue on social issues that are not unimportant but that are just not as relevant to the vast majority of people as much broader issues um so, you know, if you look at, like, for example, the, the sort of the border crisis, right? We do have a crisis. Um, the best way to, to solve it is going to be um, sort of, uh, like, contentious no matter what, right? There's, mm -hmm. no, there's no sort of, like, just sort of, like, hey, I've got one weird trick that's going to make everybody agree on immigration. <laughs> it's just not going to happen because people just don't agree. Yeah. But... Um, and we could at least have the debate about how many people to let into the country and how and who to choose it, et cetera. Um, if you looked at like Trump, who for years, is this the first time we said the word Trump in this podcast? Probably. It's kind that's, of shocking. That's crazy. Yeah. An hour in. That's, that's wild. Um, but, you know, Trump would not talk about immigration without talking about the, the gang MS-13, right? Yeah. Um, and MS-13 are bad guys. I don't like MS-13, but like, that's just such a such a minuscule little element to the broad immigration debate. But he did it because it's effective, because if you do that, right, if you keep sort of saying, hey, here's MS-13 over here, then people won't notice that, like, you don't really have an immigration policy, right? Like, you, you don't actually have, like, a policy that you that you want. You don't have a coherent sort of idea in that way. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, <laughs> there are some problems that are just like, we just got to fight them out. Right. There, there are problems that we just sort of have to have out and they're going to be uncomfortable. And you and I would disagree about plenty of it. I do think that if we're going to start anywhere, if we want to have any sort of sense of bipartisanship or sort of coming together to understand our problems, I think we should start here. Okay. Um, this country is far richer than it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, many, many people uh, are struggling more than they would have 50 years ago because of the increase of the price of housing, education, right, and healthcare. Like those three things have grown so enormously in their costs over the past half century, um, totally obliterating the sort of gains we've made in average wages, like just far, far, increasing far, far faster. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't think there's any reason that we can't sort of say as a country, okay, look, like we clearly have a really serious costs problem with housing, education, and healthcare. There are three things that people can't just choose to go without, right? And by education, I'm including daycare, which is just insanely expensive now. Yeah. Right? And if you can't get daycare, then your kids can't, then you can't work. And if you can't work, then you can't, you know. Um, like, I would like to see people sort of talk about those three things as a unit and say, they've gotten hugely more expensive. We've got to figure out why. And we have to come together and find some sort of way to, to fix this because um, we're just not going to ever see any real positive gain in people's wages that means anything. If their mortgages, their rent, their insurance premiums, their daycare payments um, are going up so high that it eats all of that money. Like that's a good example of where I think there might be the opportunity for some real bipartisanship. Maybe I'm not. Are, are you saying the Reaganomics trickle down didn't work? I I am indeed saying that that it did not in fact trickle down. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. I was betting on that. Uh, I saw somebody on TikTok do this video, so I'll just quote the numbers and, and don't uh, sue me for not being accurate because I'm not sure if they are, but they sound uh, they are since, since. And he showed that housing is up 29% over the last 30, 40, 50 years, however long as I'm losing. I can't feel my legs anymore. Uh, I'm that old. Uh, uh, housing, uh, childcare, all these costs, education, like you mentioned, are up 20, 20, 20 30% where uh, with wages, and I think his numbers may include the last few years of increase, uh, only went up 6%. So we're asking people to afford all these things. And, you know, the, I've been watching the middle class die since the eight, the mid 80s, you know, and, and I've been watching it slowly disappear. And it's getting worse, you know. You were hearing about people in Florida who can't insure their homes anymore because of legislation there that, that uh, you know, made it made him it made it harder for them to you know sue and 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 people to sue and whatever uh you can't insure your home and i was like shocked by that i'm like holy crap there's people now going on insurance i mean it's 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 really time that we said hey politicians quit quit doing those signaling of the flags of the of the social things fix what's wrong in this country for everybody and then let me ask you this is, I know we're going along on the show, but this is great stuff. Do we do we also, as whether we're activists or elites or just the average human being, do we all need to start recognizing that we need to quit being so extreme? We need to start saying, how can we come together? How can we agree? How can we compromise instead of this this uh, far left, far right, just like our way or the highway? Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I would put it in those terms. Here's how okay. I would put it, right? Um, <clears throat> I want people to express their conscience, right? Um, when some people express their conscience, they say that there should be no abortion under any circumstances. And I express my own conscience and say, that's crazy, right? Because that's just how politics is and how it works. I don't mm -hmm. want either of us to be less extreme in the sense that like we back off what our conscience is telling us. Mm -hmm. What I do want is to say this, um, like a thing that I tell young lefties a lot is they're not just going to stop making Republicans. In other words, when you're in the process of thinking about the, the potential future, it has to be an actual like potential future, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you need to um, um, bake into the cake the fact that like there's always going to be people who you can't stand who have as much influence as you do and you're never going to get everything that you want. So you mm -hmm. don't compromise on your deeply held moral beliefs. 
but you understand as an adult, like, shit, I'm just not going to get everything that I want. What can I live with in a way that I can go to sleep at night? Um, that's not everything that I want, but is some of what I want. There you go. A compromise mm -hmm. and living like an adult who knew mm -hmm. <laughs> self accountability. You know, I've, I've started a thing doing whenever politics comes up is I've started laying a foundation of saying, okay, if we're going to talk about this, I want to lay a foundation. We're all Americans here mm -hmm. and we're going to talk as fellow Americans. You're a fellow American of mine. We're all Americans. That's more fucking important. The Constitution is more important than whatever the shit else you want to talk about from here on out. And everything revolves around that basis. And it's interesting to me establishing that foundation. And even if I have to call it back, whoa, 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 hey, we're Americans first. So what do we need to do for America? Fuck the left, fuck the right. And I'm not saying totally, but in the conversation, what do we need to do as Americans? And so that's kind of helped keep some of the conversations I've had more grounded and people have kind of had an aha moment where they go, wait, we are Americans. And it recognizes that we're two people. We're going to have to compromise on, you know, the extremes or, or what people want. But that used to be what this country was kind of good at. You know, I mean, Tip O'Neill did, you know, would compromise. But, you know, once we got, uh, who was the Republican uh, Newt Gingrich in, you know, it was like fucking the highway or nothing. And it's kind of been that way ever since. So great discussion. Great discussion. Any final thoughts, Freddie, as we go out? My final thoughts is that you can learn all about these issues and more in the new How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement by me, Frederick DeBoer, out next Tuesday. There you go. September 5th, 2023. You can order it wherever fine books are sold. Uh, give me your dot com, uh, Freddie, uh, wherever you want people to find you on the interwebs. Yeah, it, it, so it's Freddie Substack. Uh, Freddie, sorry, <laughs> can't even remember my own web address. FreddieDeBoer.substack.com. But if you just put in my name into Google, that's the first thing that pops up. There you go. How elites ate the social justice movement. I don't want to see what happened after it passed through their system. Uh, but maybe that's where we are today. Maybe there's a joke there, a second book, Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway guys uh thanks for tuning in we certainly appreciate you guys being here remember we're all americans damn it i mean the show's international so uh those of you who are american we're all americans just so you know uh you might want to remember that first uh Go to goodreads.com, fortress.chrisfoss, youtube.com, fortress.chrisfoss, linkedin.com, fortress.chrisfoss, and all those great places on the internet. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time. Love the discussion.